The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at HalliburtonLabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Anna Dye, who is the CEO and co-founder of Varia Energy. Anna is a very unique individual, super awesome, great to talk to. She's a Houstonian native. She graduated from the University of Texas, where she was going to go into the medical field and decided that she didn't want to go into medicine and ended up working for a startup that took off, ended up taking her over to the Netherlands. She lived in Amsterdam gained some great perspective and she's bringing that back with her or she's brought that back with her rather to start up Varia Energy, which is a provider of smart building technology, which is intended to root out inefficient waste of water, energy and other facility operational systems. So when I asked Anna for her own bio, she summed it up with saying she is a sustainability advocate with a passion for the creative arts, which I think really comes through in the interview. So without further ado, here's my interview with Anna Dye. Anna. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So just for a sense of geography, where are you at today? I'm in Houston, Texas. You're in Houston? Which part of Houston are you in? I'm in the Memorial area right now, but I go back between this area and Montrose. So okay. where Greentown Labs is too. Yeah. That's yeah. where our office is located. Awesome. So you're a native Houstonian, right? Yes. I would say so. I came here when I was around eight. And I left when I was, I left for school in Austin. So I went to UT and then I came back in 2019. But 2019, I would say was when I uh, started living my adult life in Houston. First time okay. living my adult life in Houston. Yeah. Which part of Houston did you grow up in? I grew up in Cyprus. In Cyprus. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you probably went to what, Cypher High School or something like that? Yeah, I did go to Cypher High School. <laughs> You know, it's funny because I went to Jersey Village and, you know, I'm a little bit older. So back then it was just Jersey Village and Cy Fair that were on the Northwest side. And yeah. then you had, you know, Klein Forest, Cy Falls, and then all these other high schools have started to pop up. And it seems like there's probably three, maybe four times as many high schools now as there was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's crazy. Like this, the amount of expansion that's happened on the Northwest part of Houston is just ridiculous. Yeah, it did happen quickly because by the time I went to school, there was, you know, Cy Ridge, Cy Falls, Cy Lakes. I think there were 15 or something schools in the district. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> so you decided to go to UT. Was UT your first choice or how many other schools were you looking at when you decided to, to leave for school? So UT was not my first choice. <laughs> I'll be very <laughs> with you. When I was in high school, I wanted to leave Texas. I knew I wanted to leave Texas. I wanted to leave the heat. I wanted to be outside of home. I got into Carnegie Mellon, but I ended up going to UT instead. And it was kind of for personal reasons at the time. And I decided to stay close to home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's pretty normal. You know, UT and A&M are like Texas Ivy League, right? Like that's... Yeah. 
those are the ones that everybody wants to go to that are here in Texas. What was your experience like going to UT? Did you did you really enjoy it? Are you do you think maybe one day you'll want to go back to Austin or did you have your fill while you're there? I think given a little bit of time, I would go back to Austin. But right now, what I remember of Austin is just staying in the library late nights in the library. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have a little post-traumatic from all that work you were doing in school. Yeah, the amount of studying that we had to do. <laughs> the PCL, that was the library. They had five floors, and I just remember going up to the quiet floor, fourth floor, every every day and just studying. <laughs> so your original plan was pre-med, right? You were you were going to become a doctor? Yeah, it was pre-med. So I had a little bit of history with that, too. I thought I wanted to be a doctor up until the point where I started really shadowing doctors here in the U.S. And I got a chance to go to Europe. So I got a chance to go to Spain, actually, to shadow in not Madrid, but a city right outside of Madrid, Guadalajara, at a local hospital over there. And I spent three four no, not three, four months. I spent almost two months up there and I realized, wow. American medicine is run by pharmaceutical companies. Like it's the marketing from that side that kind of drives the research in America. I mean, like there's, I always knew about Eastern medicine, but I didn't really understand that the rest of the world kind of went off of like, you know, a mixture of holistic medicine until I got over to Spain and I was just like, oh, okay, they're not prescribing pills for everything, every ailment that they need over there. Whereas in America, they did. And that was part of the curriculum over here. And in which I think in America, it's one of the most rigorous curriculums to go through as a doctor. But I, as soon as I went to Europe, I came back and I realized I wasn't for sure if I wanted to go through all of that because you give up so much of your life essentially. And at yeah. the very end, I was already not like sure. I was like, okay, maybe I can be like a physical therapist. I like kind of, I'm into sports. I'm into like athletics. I still work out a lot. I still try to keep a very active part of my life. Maybe I should do PT. Maybe I should look into sports medicine. Maybe I should look into you know holistic medicine over here, DO school instead. And so that's kind of where my differentiating journey started in college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because I obviously, you know, living in the States and growing up here, I also traveled in the military and I went to other places and I noticed that it was a little bit different, the healthcare systems in different parts of the world. But also something that had you know, I'd learned or someone that told me is that, you know, there's not, there's not enough money in the cure, the money's in the treatment. And so, you know, it was, it, that sort of hit home for me when I realized like, wow, you know, I mean, especially when I think about, you know, things that have happened over the you know course of my lifetime that I've heard about as far as like opioid addiction and then like pharmaceutical companies getting in trouble for it. I think it was Purdue Pharma that ended up going bankrupt over it. And, you know, also, I totally get what you're saying. Like, you know, it sounds like, you know, you really wanted to do some good in your heart and you felt like you this would really be the path for you forward. Not that, you know, medicine isn't doing good in the world, but it's wasn't exactly where you saw yourself going. Is that right? Yeah, no, definitely. I think the length and the time that people put in, it's rigorous. It's very rigorous. I have a lot of respect for people that end up getting their MD or whatnot. But I think at the very end of the day, it just wasn't what I wanted. And I knew that deep down inside, but I kept going. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm already three years in deep. <laughs> so which direction in medicine did you, if you were to go down that road, or if you had gone down that road, what type of doctor do you think that you would have ended up becoming? 
I think I would have been like a holistic doctor, like a doctor of DO, osteopathics instead of medical doctor. And I also didn't get that deep, right? So like I would say my undergrad degree was a bio degree. I was also a Chinese relations degree, but I didn't even apply to med school. So the first startup I was in was I ended up going into it as a senior in college. And then by my second semester senior year, it took off. And so I just didn't, my second semester senior year, I just didn't focus. <laughs> I could have done better in school. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, you ever heard that saying like, A students work for B students, B students work for C students and D students, they donate the building? <laughs> I heard, I mean, like to go back to the first startup, the guy that I worked with, he actually was, there's only one other guy, I guess he was my boss at that time, the founder of the company at that time, he dropped out of college. <laughs> so I was going to college and he was a little younger than me. He dropped out as a sophomore mechanical engineer at UT. And I I just jumped on the bandwagon with him, but I ended up <laughs> trekking through and finishing. Not saying it's like a bad thing to finish your degree. I definitely think there's perks to it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a sense of, I mean, obviously just personal achievement, finishing something that you start, right? Like just going down that road and saying, look, I get it. Like, I've learned a lot of things that I need to learn. And I know there's so much more outside this, these walls that I need to go learn in the real world. But having that sense of achievement, especially people that I think have, you know, like these tendencies for striving for success, you want to achieve things. And achieving things gives you this like hit of dopamine that nothing else can give you, right? Just like working out and achieving certain levels of fitness, right? There's just something about, you know, going and breaking a sweat and getting a workout in and building some, you know, some muscles and endorphins. And you feel so much better afterwards that, you know, again, it's just that achievement. I don't want to say the word addiction because I think that's not the right word, but, you know, we thrive on those things. People thrive on those things as human beings. We thrive on that kind of stuff. That's the incentive, right? Is to achieve something. And my wife and I, we were having dinner the other night and she told me that she's kind of talking about the founder that a lot of successful CEOs and founders have this ability to like not sense fear. So they're willing to do things like just quit college because to them, it's like, well, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm just going to go. And if I fail, I fail. And, you know, I'm, I'll figure it out along the way. And so I think that's really interesting because I think you have to have sort of, and I'm sure you can attest to this as a founder now yourself is like, you know, that fear of stepping out into the great unknown. I don't think a lot of people are really prepared for that, that type of stress. I mean, you know, I'm sure you probably have have found ways to cope with that stress, but it has to be very stressful. I can only imagine, right? Like it has to be, there's a lot of weight on your shoulders. You're trying to produce a product or service. You're trying to get it out to market. You're trying to do all these things. And I'm sure that there's all these hurdles that you have to overcome. And we can talk about some of those, but I'm sure having some of that you know, that I wouldn't want to call it like a, a foundation for getting yourself in a place like a good headspace, like by working out and stuff like that helps you sort of push past some of these challenges that you have during the course of your startup. I think it helps me feel like I'm in control of something in general. I am. So back to the working out. So I am doing a bodybuilding show coming up in three weeks. So I'm actually no kidding. But having having the discipline and the strength to keep going forward with that 
and to see incremental success, because I'll be real honest with you, like as an entrepreneur, as somebody with a company, you don't see it doesn't success isn't like a step A, step B, step three, one, two, three, right? It's like step one and then step 10 and then step five and then step four and then step 11. <laughs> and then it just goes back and forth to where you think you're progressing sometimes, but then you like a hurdle comes and you have to realize, oh, okay, now I'm a little bit, now I have to go backwards, right? But yeah, no, the working out does keep, it's just a discipline. It's the discipline and seeing like incremental success indicators is always like a good sign too. Of course, like what you said to go going back on what you said about fear too. I don't think the feeling of fear is gone necessarily. I think you just learn how to go forward with fear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I mean, there came a point where there came a point when I came back from Amsterdam that I had capital and I was generating a little bit of capital. And so I was doing okay, but there came a point where COVID hit and I had to let go of an entire team. And I still talk to some people on that team today where I just, couldn't. There was about a month where I, and this was while the COVID stuff was going on, where I didn't work out. I didn't go outside. I thought I got COVID. I probably went through a little bit of a phase where I just had my life epiphany at that point in time. And I was just like, okay, this needs to work. This has to work. This has to work. It has to work. It has to work. So every day I was just like running towards the wall. I was sending out like at least 100 to 200 emails. But I think at that point, it's also no use running against a wall too. Sometimes if you do realize there's a wall, the best thing to do is keep taking step, like a step backwards until you see your way around the wall instead of through the wall. And I think that's one thing about fear that people have is they keep moving forward because of fear when in fact that they should just take a breath and go back, go back like re reconnect with themselves. Hey, are you happy? Is this what you want to do? Or like running through the wall, running at the wall, getting injured, running into the wall. Is that making you happy? Is that like, is that what your life has amounted to at this point? And once you think of questions like that, you, you can go back and you can go like, no, that didn't work. Maybe we should try something else. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, one of the things my wife went through this yoga instructor training some years ago, and, you know, she just was really into yoga and she wanted to go just learn as much as she could about it, which was great because some of the things that, you know, kind of sort of touching on just fitness and also maybe like a little bit of healing medicine, if you will, yeah, you know, getting in tune with your body. Right. And, but also getting in tune with like who you are and learning, like looking yourself in the mirror and saying, okay, who am I? What can I do? And then making friends with that person, right. Yeah. Being nice to that person. Like telling yourself, I'm going to do anything I can for that person in the mirror. Whatever I can do, I'm going to go do it. And yeah. also learning how to talk to, you know, your your inner, at least I guess your inner child, but also like the 80-year-old you, right? And, and asking those people like, what does the little one want? And then what does the older one say we should do? And when I get to that point, am I going to look back and say, did I listen? Did I listen to myself, the older me? Because the older me is not going to tell me to do maybe all the fun things, but they're also not going to tell me to do all the things that I absolutely hate because, you know, obviously the time that we spend on the world, in the world, is way too short to do things that we really don't love doing. And sometimes it's a struggle because to find those things that you love to do, to find your sense of purpose, I think fortunately, unfortunately, we have first world problems, right? Like we're, you know, we're not... 
we're not dealing with like I got to go find clean water or clean food today. You know, that's easy. That's done. I can order that and that can come to my house. So we have to find other ways to challenge ourselves and find purpose and meaning in the work that we're doing. So that brings me to, you know, talking about Vera Energy. Is that right? Am I pronounced that right? Vera Energy? It's Varia. 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 Sorry. Varia. Varia Virtual and area. So Varia. That's what I wanted to ask you. So how did you come up with Varia? So it was supposed to be a digital green space, right? That like bridge technology from around the world. Because when I came up with Varia, I was actually over in Amsterdam working. So fast forward a little bit after college, the startup we were in got bought out by a company. I went over to Amsterdam. I stayed over there. I worked and I didn't really enjoy over there. But over there, I was able to see so much. And so I was thinking, okay, why don't we just share technologies between different parts of the world? Because, you know, Amsterdam at the time was so more advanced than Houston, not to throw shade at Houston, because Houston's my home and I'm here. Here, here I am. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but like just one example would be, and this is a big one, and it really is big because at that time it was 2017 or 2018. And I had just landed from the airport and I got picked up. I took a taxi because they don't, their Ubers are super expensive over there. If you ever go over there, you want to use Via Van. It's their local Uber. It's so much, cheaper. it's like half the price. <laughs> but when I landed I took a taxi to where we needed to go and the taxi was a Tesla. So I was just like, oh, this is cool. And then I see like 10 Teslas, like all lined up and they're all the Teslas with these doors that open up like upwards instead of sideways. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> oh, what's going on? And then somebody later filled me in that they have like their EV vehicle goal was actually they're about to hit 50%. And I was just like, oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Yeah. And they were like, oh, what's America doing? And I wouldn't say really what America was doing. And I wouldn't say where Houston was because at that time, I didn't really know either. (laughs) I mean, I spent time in Austin, but I didn't really know Houston. But it wasn't until like 2019, end of 2019, I came back to Houston. And I was just like, oh, we don't have an EV goal yet. Yet. But we're we're trekking along. And so Varia, okay, back to Varia. <laughs> Virtual area was supposed to be an area where all the technology, all the green technology could bridge around the world, right? So what people were doing around the world so that like, you know, the idea was if Houston could see that Amsterdam was below sea level, but still had a very intricate subway system, maybe they'd take some of the engineering from that that place and then bring it, you know, over to Houston, because right now Houston's not doing well with the flooding. Even yesterday, it just rained in this area where my parents live in, they, it got flooded out. So essentially, it got (laughs) flooded out. They called me and they told me about it. But and it barely rained yesterday, you were here yesterday. So it's one of those things where so if you guys don't know much about Houston, the way I was described Houston by one of our engineers was it's like a concrete basin with no drainage. And right now the city really doesn't know how to put drainage in it. So it's just a concrete pool. And when it floods, we're just kind of fucked at the moment. Yeah. And so like, so whereas Amsterdam, you know, it's also below sea level, it's windy, it rains a lot over there too, but they have an underground subway system completely. And we can argue that we have an underground, but we don't, we, 
we don't really have an underground. You know, it's not for transportation around the city. And that also, I think, is arguable, too, because we, America in general, didn't favor public transportation. They favored vehicles instead. And so our way to go about things will be different. But just looking into the differences in technologies kind of sparked a Oh, okay, we can do better. Maybe we could do something about Houston. Maybe this is what Houston needs to worry about later in the future. And even more deeper into that, oh crap, like if sea levels rise, what'll happen? Yeah. What'll happen? Yeah. That's interesting. You know, the last time, so the first time and the last time I went to Amsterdam was, I think, 2015 timeframe, somewhere right around there. So they didn't have all the Teslas and stuff like that yet. I did see a lot of bicycles, a lot of people on bikes, you know, and I mean, even to the point where it, there were so many bikes that, that I would go for a walk or something like that. And there would be bikes that had been abandoned on the side of the road and had like tulips growing out of them. I mean, just, there was a lot of bikes. So I noticed that, you know, they were very much into, you know, not just public transportation, but, you know, biking everywhere. And I mean, Amsterdam is, is a place where you could do that. I mean, they have the system set up for it. And unlike the United States, you know, they didn't have a Henry Ford and they didn't grow up with an affinity for the combustion engine and vehicles. Like I think we have so I mean, obviously we've got so many vehicles here in the United States and people, I mean, we're a lot of gearheads, me included. I love cars. You know, I think to ask people to give them up is a big ask, but I think to ask people to consider alternatives is definitely something that we definitely need to consider, especially, you know, for generations coming up behind us, because, you know, we need to try and improve the situation moving forward, right? We, we learned what we've needed to learn in order to understand like, okay, you know, not to be dramatic, but winter is coming, right? And yeah. we need to do something about that. I think there's going to be a point in time when, especially as, as American car manufacturers start to transition over towards creating more EVs and things like that. But I think there's going to be a time when, you know, later on, when people do want to have the EV type vehicle, even, you know, self-driving vehicles where it's just a matter of convenience, right? It's no longer going to be a matter of like, well, I want to just drive around and go fast and do as well. But people, there's still going to be people that just enjoy the, the activity of driving However, driving is the most dangerous thing that we do. And, you know, I think if we can start to look at ways of preventing car accidents and bringing down accidents prevented or preventing deaths by car accident, you know, I think that'll be a very helpful thing as well. But, no, that's interesting that, you know, having that experience going overseas and then having that experience is what stemmed or spurred the, the, the idea for Varia. So tell us a little bit more about what you guys are doing. So if I know this correctly, you guys are helping companies really understand the pulse of their usage of energy, but dive into that a little bit more about how you guys do it, like you know some of the projects that you've been working on and stuff like that. So we work with commercial and industrial facilities at this moment right now, just to go in in, in depth in a little bit of our pitch and like the problem that America faces and challenges right now. And I do have a comment about the car comment, so I'll go back to that. But so facilities, so just to take the audience through, 
where America is. So we had our industrial boom back 100 years ago, right? So all our facilities were created around 100 years ago, you know, like early 1900s, late 1800s. Most of these facilities have never changed or ever gotten demolished. They just kept getting built up on it, right? So same piping system, same gas and electricity system ever since they been built. I would say 80% of the facilities in the US are older than 50, 50, 40 or 50 years old. And most of these facilities are antiquated and still run off of processes and systems that are over like 20 to 40, 20 to 30 to 40 years old. And they have water leaks, right? So water's running through it, the city water's running through it, and there's water leaks, there's shortages everywhere in our system that go unaccounted for, right? So what our company really does is we then go in and then we take the data that the facility has. So each facility has at least like three data measurements, right? So they have water, gas, and they have electricity. And then there's also solid municipal waste that we work with as well, but I'm not going to move that out for the sake of this conversation. But we take the monthly utility data, we run it into our software, and we're able to detect and see if there's any kind of anomalies, right? So whether there's a water leak, one of the examples I keep stress using is one of the universities we piloted on, they had 50 years of data, they were an old university up in the Pacific Northwest, and they had a water leak in their library for seven years and it went unnoticed and it was just a water fountain water leak but it cost them one million dollars and it like wasted you know it wasted a lot of water like at the very end of the day the amount of water that's wasted in the pipes in the u.s are great too right so what our system does or software does in general is it detects any of these anomalies in the system but whereas most of our competitors right now look at data like in detail right like there's so much there's so much technology out there that go like, oh, okay, we're going to turn your fridge like on at peak hours, exactly how it needs to be so that the coolant is on only like, you know, five minutes each hour so that the fridge still maintains the same, like, you know, X, Y, and Z. We don't do that. We don't, we don't look at data in detail like that. We can, we have a tier level, but we stress looking at data holistically for facilities so that we can reduce and cut down or eliminate all the consumption, right? anything that would have issues and leakages and with especially process intensive industrial facilities where like or even like just like food for example food manufacturing facilities where the process is almost 24 7 if there was a grease clog right away we'd be able to detect that depending on the meter or the data that we get and that's essentially what we are doing right now all in a nutshell (laughs) nice and you guys are working with like you said industrial companies right so some are some of the, I guess, what are some of the industries that you think would be the biggest benefit, you know, have the biggest impact by utilizing the offerings that you guys have? So industrial for sure. Industrial for sure. But let me tell you the mentality that the industrial has down here, it hasn't crossed there yet, you know, because like over here, we have the mentality that if it works, why mess with it, you know? And I think that it's changed. It slowly has changed. But we, industrial, we've seen up to 50% cost savings. You know, we've seen some of the manufacturing companies not change processes for like 30 to 40 years, ever since they opened some bakeries over here. I I won't say any names, but (laughs) we've seen them. We've seen them run the same equipment for 20 to 30 years. The same employees, same equipment. The equipment's old. It's run down. And they spend 
you know, almost a million dollars on just their electricity bill per month. You know, there's something wrong there. So when we take a look at that, there's something wrong there. But getting embedded and getting actually like going into a facility, that's kind of where we've made our play really easy too, where we just have to, you just have to drop your data for us and we'll run it in the software instead of installing any meters. But even then, we're still seeing a little bit of pushback on, hey, we still don't want to do that process because we're, you know, we're already profitable. So why, why do, why mess with something if we're already profitable? You know, that's interesting because I would think that as you know, a company where you know you can have more efficiency and even maybe you know do some green good, if you will. I mean, you know, sort of like reduce your consumption because I think the reduction of consumption is the biggest, could be the biggest impact towards energy transformation, right? Like, you know, having you know, reducing consumption and then more, what is the, the word escapes from right now off the top of my head, but making things more, I can't even think of it. Anyway, it's on top of my head. I'll come back to that here in a second. I'm interested as to, you know, why companies wouldn't be more open-minded unless they're, and it probably goes back to unless they have a really good reason, right? Unless they're maybe being punished or, you know, something along that line, which to me, I mean, getting a million dollar energy bill sounds a lot like punishment to me. So that would spur enough, energy, you know, spur enough motivation for me to want to change it. But that's really interesting. You know, I think that that's really interesting. What was the comment that you had about vehicles that you wanted to talk about? Going back to vehicles, that slipped my mind. Let me think about it. Come back to me for that question. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I remember the question now. I think that we're going to ultimately end up going to like either hydrogen fuel vehicles or like EV vehicles in general, because our public transportation system won't be it in America, America, it's as you said, America is not designed for public transportation. America's designed for motor vehicles. But I mean, we'll see a lot of things have happened, you know, that I've never expected to happen. So <laughs> we can see we can see with time. You know, on that comment that America is designed for vehicles, I heard, I don't know, I didn't do my research or anything like that. I just heard this and it sort of made me think for a second. So maybe I'm wrong and I'm sure people will fact check me if I'm wrong. But I heard that, you know, during a time of, you know, so the Michelin tires, right? Yeah. You know, they would notice that people weren't buying tires that much. You know, they'd buy tires and then, you know, they wouldn't drive or whatever. They wouldn't drive long distances. So what Michelin did is they went out and they started to review restaurants that were really far from where major people were at. And that's how we started getting Michelin star restaurants. And <laughs> so what they wanted to do was encourage people to drive, right? Like that's why Henry Ford, you know, created the five day work week because he wanted to give his employees two days off so they would go drive around in their oh. vehicles. And so, yeah, you know, so, I mean, we, you know, this is just American history we're talking about now, but, you know, I think, you know, America has this affinity for the love of just driving. You know, you heard the, you know, the term, I'm going to go for a Sunday drive or, you know, I'm just going to go for a cruise. I mean, and even in like my culture, the Hispanic culture, you know, we have people that are big car enthusiasts and they go and on Sunday nights, they want to go cruise the block and go see each other and they have car meetups. You know, I mean, it's just American culture now you know, you have muscle cars, you have, you know, different types of cars, you have, you know, exotics. I mean, I know here at Houston, they have what's called coffee and cars, the first Saturday of every month, and people come out and you see them, you know, they'll, 
people are doing burnouts and donuts and people yeah. are showing off. And I mean, it's just something that's just ingrained in the American DNA. And, you know, I think, I mean, now I, I see, especially with the Teslas coming out and, and being super fast, people love that, right? They're like, this thing just has instant torque, super fast. It's, you know, it's, you can buy a Tesla and smoke a, you know, smoke a Ferrari or something like that, right? And so people, people really, you know, they're really into that. And you see things like the Cybertruck coming out and stuff like that, which I think is big for people. I, I remember when I saw it, I was like, I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't know if how many Cybertrucks I'll see driving around Houston, but I'm sure I'll see plenty, you know, <laughs> it's going to be really interesting. But I think that, you know, in order for, you know, Americans to really want to, you know, transfer over. I think it's going to be the younger generation. I don't think that they're going to really be as interested in, you know, I think they're going to be more about convenience. Can I just have some car drive me around? Is there an autonomous vehicle that I can have take me around? I'd rather not have to go through the trouble. I'd rather be able to like read a book or play on my phone than have to drive and worry about, you know, turn here, turn left, speed up, slow down, watch this light, watch that light, right? So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. You know, you talked about on one of the podcasts that I listened to that you were traveling quite extensively when you were in Amsterdam. You were traveling something like 80 days out of the year or something like that, right? And I just happened to, and I'm going to plug this shamelessly, but I happened to host a business travel podcast on Club Clubhouse every Wednesdays at 12 o'clock. Please check it out. But I want to get your perspective on business travel. So what are some of the key, and, and, I'm, and I'm going to tee this up for you. What are some of the key things that Anna takes with her when she travels? So it's been quite a while since I've traveled, but I had it down pat when I did travel. So I always took a suitcase because I essentially you live out of your suitcase, right? So you have to have everything in the suitcase. One thing that I always had, I mean, it was pretty basic. I had one pair of like tennis shoes, one pair of heels. I'd always wear my tennis shoes and then the heels would be for something else. I'd always have a suit and then I'd always carry a warm, warm clothing and then cold clothing, just in case. Because in Europe, you could go from like Estonia and then to Israel and then to Turkey, where it will go from like, you know, almost close to like 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 50, 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and then all the way up to like 100 degree Fahrenheit. And you'd have to watch out for that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So you guys are now part of Greentown Labs. I was at the inaugural opening when the mayor spoke. And so I think that place is going to be really interesting and watching all the companies go in there. How did you guys, I mean, what was that process like getting involved? How'd you get involved and what's it been like so far? So Greentown Labs has been pretty great. Just to go a little bit in on the history of like Houston and where we, so we came back 2019, right? In 2019, I was just fresh around the world. Like I was freshly back in Houston. And I was just like, yeah, we're going to go to every like climate event in Houston because there's going to be like 50,000. No, dude, there was only one. <laughs> <laughs> it was really that there was just one event and it was a climathon. So it was a hackathon. And we talked about like five issues and how to solve these five issues. One of them being the EV vehicle issue. Like we made a plan to get to 100% EV vehicle by 2050. Let's hack away and think about how we can get there. Right. You know, like policies. So like, I remember every being there and like all the big wigs, even like the bigger environmental companies that have been around for a while in Houston, they were there, right? And that was the initial event. I think it either happened September, October, or November of 2019. And we went, it was great, it was insightful, but that was the only event, right? And then from there, 
a year passed along where there was barely any like so at that point in time i would say the energy companies over here the oil companies were over here were still a little bit skeptical on like the like you know climate change sustainability and whatnot but then the whole oil crash happened within that year and then all of a sudden so Summer, right after COVID, so summer 2020, you start seeing a little bit of a change where you see now these venture arms come out, like these venture arms come out of all of these oil companies. You know, you got like Baker Hughes, got a venture, Shell's got some kind of game changer, you know, Chevron, whatnot. They all have these venture firms that come out. And then the big one was we ended up joining an accelerator that was based out of Austin and it was an agnostic accelerator. And so like, we really didn't at that point in time, we also look at like sustainability. So we're impact, right? So we're, we're carbon credits, energy efficiency, as well as, you know, the, the like generating revenue and whatnot. But they introduced us to a mentor that we had over in Boston and Boston is where Greentown Labs originally started. And so there they told us that. So our mentor was just like, oh, you should join Greentown Labs Boston. So I hit up the Boston guys and I was just like, hey, I heard y'all were a great green tech incubator. Let's see what we can do. And they then they were like, no, 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 we're opening. This was October of 2020. So this was like when Greentown started like crawling for members in Houston. They didn't have a physical location yet. They kind of had a physical location, but their operations lead at the time, Jason contacted me. We reached out, we hit it off. We had a good idea. And he was just like, you should, you should just join and be a member. So I joined up, like we were one of the first ones to join up. I talked to some of my friends in Boston about it and they were like, yeah, 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 no, you definitely should. Greentown started growing. They raised funding from, you know, the city of Houston, Wells Fargo, all the big guys over here, BP, whatnot. And then they launched and they opened on Earth Day. So you were there. I was there as well. And it's been it's been wonderful. I think just going and reliving like the past couple of years and going back to 2019 from like for the with the facility that we have right now I'm not in the facility right now but we have an office space there compared to that tiny little room like out of like it was right off of Midtown so it was like you know right across from the bars of all Midtown that tiny little space where everybody like Houston Exponentials Accenture everybody was crammed into to talk about EV vehicles and like you know the issues that we're dealing with like environmental policy in Houston, it's it's grown. We've grown. We've seen some change. And it's great being a part of that growth from, I would say, almost day one, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. You mentioned something about working with mentors. And I think that's something I've heard, you know, as a very common thing amongst, you know, startups that are starting to try and grow and scale their businesses. And even companies that have years of history that are scaling their business and they've talked about working with advisors and mentors and things of that nature. You know, how how has that really helped you as an entrepreneur? And how do you feel like that's helped your business? And I guess what are some of the things that you would recommend that other companies or entrepreneurs think about as far as having somebody advise them or be a consultant for them as they're trying to, you know, take their business forward? Like is there a certain type of advisor or just mentor or, you know, are, were you looking for a certain skill set or something along those lines? It's something maybe that you didn't have or didn't understand right away. How did your specific, how did you specifically come to, you know, have an advisor and then, you know, 
what would you say, like looking forward, some of the things that somebody would want to think about if they're trying to find an advisor, you know, some things to maybe keep in mind? I think that always keep an open mind. I mean, of course, there's going to be so as somebody that's like starting out with a startup, and there's so many more people so far down the line, it's just have an open mind and don't be afraid to reach out, right? So like when you ask for help, a lot of the times somebody's going to help you, right? And so in my experience with mentors, there's going to be useful help and there's going to be help that is not as useful, not because it's wrong, but it's because it's you're not looking at the end goal. So like if you really know where you want to be, and it goes back to what we were saying, like your authentic you, like if you know what you want to do, and this is what you want to do, not because of what other people say, but because you want to do it and you go out and you seek people based off of what you truly are passionate about, people will fall in line, right? And you also can't be afraid of asking for help. So the people that are advisors that have, that I consider some of our great advisors, probably like the best advisors we've had and the people are, are the people I continue talking to because their advice helps because I continuously seek out and ask them for help because it's beneficial. You know, now if it's not like as beneficial, their help isn't unvalued. It's just like, you know, they also understand it's not the right fit. I can't ask like a bicycle company to help build a software that we're building, you know, because it just doesn't make sense, right? And I think what keeps people from moving forward at the very end of the day is like an inability to ask because like a fear or a pride or ego. But once you get past that, if you do get past that, once you get past that, everything will like fall into place because most of the time, like people really do want to help. Like nobody wants to see you struggle. And I think at the very end of the day, there's such a mentality that like all the VCs, all the incubators, everybody wants to see entrepreneurs struggle, but that's not really the case. They want to help you. It's just is a little bit of a struggle. You know, this has been a little bit of a walk through a grapevine, but that's what happens when you pave way for something that hasn't happened, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anybody in your immediate family or in your circle that, that you saw, you know, build a business as an entrepreneur that inspired you? Or is this something that, are you the outlier in your family? Well, okay. So I guess I'm the outlier in my family. Just a little bit of background about myself. My mom was a reservoir engineer. My dad was a geophysicist. But recently, my dad also wants to create his own software. So he's a little behind me on like creating like a geophysics, like rock composition software or something. He's been, him and his friend are working on it right now. So he's, <laughs> he's having a great time. We, he hits me up sometimes and we both talk about it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Because sometimes people have, you know, like, you know, they say apples don't fall too far from the tree. And if you've come from a background of entrepreneurs and things like that. So I want to ask you one more question before we wrap up here. I see a keyboard behind you. Is, is that, do you play? Yeah. Yeah, I do. How long have you been playing for? I've been playing. So there was a little bit of a break. I started when I was four or five. I played for 10 years and then I quit and then I stopped playing. Now, but I will say, coming from an Asian background, my parents were kind of strict about it. So I didn't really like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and so I always knew how to play, but it wasn't until this past few years that I said, when you start getting older, you start realizing you don't want to just be operational. You don't want to just get from point A to point B. You want to get from point A to point B with a little bit of flavor and a little bit of style. Yeah. And that's... <laughs> 
that's where I have music and dance and whatnot have flavored my life a little bit right now. When do you catch yourself playing? Like if you've had a stressful day or if you just want to unwind, when, when do you usually, when do you usually turn around and start hitting, hitting those keys? Definitely when I notice myself, especially recently when I notice myself thinking in circles, I hate thinking in circles, but there's no benefit in thinking in circles. It just increases your anxiety. And so I just stop and I focus on something else and I start playing. I shine my shoes when I'm stressed out. (laughs) Yeah, at least you got shoes after that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's a military thing, right? So, you know, it's just something that I know that I can go do. And I'll feel better, you know, once I'm done doing it. Like I have to focus on a very specific task. Like I'll do something like shine my shoes or wash my car when I'm really stressed out because it just gives me something simple to just not mind them and focus on. I mean, obviously exercise helps do that as well, but you know, you can't exercise 24 seven or else your muscles will never regenerate themselves. Right. Yeah. So no, that's really interesting. And I noticed, and I noticed when, when you were getting ready is that, I saw a R&B book back there. So is that what you play? What, what kind of music do you play? I like jazz. I like bluesy stuff. I like soulful stuff. Again, it's like more something where, you, you know, you have like meaning something with passion. I like passion. I think passion is like something that I'm able to really go in and dig and explore. It kind of fits everything, you know, passion is there everywhere in my life. Another key term, I guess, and theme that reoccurs in my life is holistic. I like passion, I like holistic health, I like holistic things. Our products even called the holistic utility management. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you're integrating things that you know, right? And I think that's really important, especially if you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, but you've got, you know, other skills that sort of complement what you're doing, right? And you, you, you're figuring out how to use the ingredients that you have available to make your soup. And, yeah. you know, that's really important, right? If you, if you do that, you, know, you do it well, then I think success is just, you know, just a matter of time. It's not a matter of if, but when, right? And so that's really important. Very last question. You're working out. What's your playlist? What's that sound like? When I'm working out, I like hip hop when I'm working out. I like, so I am definitely on the hip hop end, not the EDM end, but what I like listening to when I really work out, I like old school hip hop. So I like listening to East Coast rap when I hit, like, I think, I think that's where like it hits you the most. And it just sometimes, I'm not going to say this. I don't know if I can say this on this podcast, but sometimes you need to just shut up and keep working. No, I get it. I get it. I get it. And, you know, that, that old school stuff, you know, you say old school East Coast. I mean, that's where it really all originated from, right? And they were super, super lyrical, you know, very in tune. Like, you know, some of the vocabulary that these artists have is just, I mean, it's impressive, yeah. right? Yeah. And their ability to put it all together and make it, you know, melodic and interesting and, and you know, at the same time, you know, just a little rough around the edges that kind of gets you going, right? Like, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. There. I'm a big music lover. I love music, all types of music. Definitely mix it up whenever I'm working out as well. I've listened from everything from, you know, speed metal to hip hop to, you know, EDM sometimes if I feel like it. But interesting, interesting. Anna, please let everybody know where they can go to learn about you, learn about the company. How can they connect with you? 
So they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Just look up Anna Dye. I think my LinkedIn profile is A-N-N-A-D-A-I-I. But our website actually is this probably the best way to connect with me. It's variaenergy.com, V-A-R-E-A-E-N-E-R-G-Y.com. Awesome. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I know I got a lot of value out of the conversation. I'm sure the audience did. We're definitely going to have to get you back, get an update, see how things are going later on. But thank you so much for spending time with us today. No, of course. Thank you for having me. Okay. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for August 2021. This month, we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on August 26th. Our July happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the last one, we hope to see you there this month. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts, network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Other than OGGN's events, we have three in-person events and one hybrid in-person and online event. First up, we have our three in-person events. The first being OTC, or the Offshore Technology Conference, at NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, from August 16th to the 19th. Next, we have the IPAA Leaders in Industry Luncheon at the Petroleum Club of Houston on August 17th. And lastly, we have the 2021 Connected Plant Conference at the Renaissance Hotel in Austin, Texas, from August 30th to September 2nd. Other than our three in-person events, we have our hybrid event, which is NAEP, or the North American Prospect Expo. Now this summit is a hybrid event because it's both online and in-person. The in-person portion of the event will be from August 18th to the 20th at the George R. Brown Convention Center, while the online portion of the event is from August 9th to September 3rd. If you have any questions about these events or any podcasts within the Oil & Gas Global Network, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for August. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.